Kia ora, and welcome to Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. On the 30th of July, academics from the university's Faculty of Health held a webinar on COVID-19 and public health titled, What's in the Air? They discussed the wider public health implications of COVID-19 and how the public sector can better support communities. Uh, for those of you uh, for uh, whom this is the first time, I'm Professor Gregor Costa, Dean of the Wellington Faculty of Health, and it's a pleasure to welcome you all to the meeting this afternoon. I'll be moderating. Uh, we're going to be hearing from three speakers. Uh, the first will be Professor Colin Simpson, talking about what does epidemiology research tell us all about COVID-19. And then we'll have Dr. Anna Matheson talking about COVID-19 and equity, and, then, and she'll be followed by Dr. Tara Officer talking about pharmacy practice under COVID-19. So we're going to start with Colin. Professor Simpson is Professor of Population Health at uh, the Wellington Faculty of Health. He's a trained epidemiologist working in the field of population health sciences and has published over 100 papers in, in peer-reviewed research journals in the areas particularly of infectious and respiratory disease epidemiology data science and medical informatics. He's recently been awarded an HRC grant entitled Predict and Prevent COVID-19, a data-driven innovation project. So he's going to be talking to us about what does epidemiology research tell us about COVID-19. He's going to cover what can we learn from COVID-19, how is this virus different from the flu virus, and lessons to the future. Colin, welcome along, and we look forward to hearing from you. Thank you. Thank you, Gregor. Uh, so, uh, as Gregor said, I'm going to look at some of the challenges that we faced, uh, a kind of epidemiological recap of, of COVID-19, um, make some or draw some quick comparisons with uh, influenza and talk a little bit about future work. So, where are we today? Well, um, SARS coronavirus 2 has caused nearly 17 million confirmed cases and approaching 700,000 deaths. And that's despite countries introducing control measures, I mean, some with uh, varying degrees of stringency. And uh, some of these control measures include isolation and quarantine, uh, closure of workplaces and education facilities, schools, social gathering limits. Um, in many countries, now there's mandatory face coverings. And that's because we face a number of challenges around uh, this virus. There is um, high transmissibility. And what we know is that approximately the, the basic reproduction number is um, around about two, between two and five. And I'll put that into context a little later. There is sometimes a very long incubation period for this, for this virus. So, and, and that's long, what I mean by long incubation is until we get a large enough viral load that we might have some symptoms or we might um, um, be able to test and get a good result, a good positive result. And because of that, we have a lot of pre-symptomatic transmission uh, and we have people tra also transmitting where they are asymptomatic. So, for instance, 
um, we're finding that almost 80% of people have no symptoms. And these individuals actually have the potential to become what we know as, as super spreaders. So these are people who can spread um, the disease amongst a, a great number of individuals. And as I said, there's an existence of, of asymptomatic uh, individuals too. And, and that means that these infections can go completely undetected. And, and that's largely why in New Zealand, we've been very wise and cautious to introduce a 14-day quarantine period. Uh, and we test two tests, there's a test early on, and then a, a final test at day 12, and then a two-day period, and then and then if you're completely uh, free of positive COVID, then you can, then you're allowed to be released. And actually this um, very rigid quarantine has now been considered by other countries. For instance, the UK have now extended a quarantine from a number of countries, travel from a number of countries to 10 days. I have no doubt that we'll move to similar to New Zealand in due course. As I said before, accurate detection of of this disease is very tricky. Um, and we're in the middle, of course, of an ongoing pandemic. We have, at the beginning of the pandemic, we have particular problems with false negatives. So these are individuals who have been told that they uh, don't have the disease. They've been tested and, they, and they've been told they don't have the disease and they've gone about their way. And before lockdown, this was a real issue because they continue to go and spread the virus. We're now in a situation where in a number of countries, we have very low prevalence of the disease. So that means the disease isn't um, transmitting as highly. And actually now we have a, an issue around uh, false positives. So we have lots and lots of people coming in for testing in some countries, tens of thousands uh, with low prevalence. And what we have is some people actually being uh, told they're positive. And they're not. And that, again, is a problem with the accuracy of the test. And actually what that does is it now makes test and trace quite complicated. So we can't just go and test loads and loads of people, for instance, in the community to try and find community transmission. Um, that is a real challenge uh, for New Zealand. And actually going forward in other parts of the world, um, it's going to be a real challenge to stop new outbreaks. So we can't really pinpoint where the disease is being transmitted in the community. Some quick flu comparisons. So uh, let's look at the pandemic flu. It's infected between 700 million and 1.4 billion people. Uh, but actually the number of deaths was between 150,000 and 575,000, quite, quite wide estimates. But still, um, it's actually now the number of deaths for, for pandemic flu is less than this current pandemic. So this pandemic is, is um, very severe. Uh, another place you can go and look at this, um, if you don't if you want to see it for yourself, is to go to a website called Euromomo, which is the European Morbidity Mortality uh, Statistics. And these are from 21 countries around Europe. And you can compare this season's mortality morbidity to previous years. And you can see that there's a huge spike. In fact, for over 85s, it, they managed to reach off the scale, which I've never seen before. So they actually now have to adjust the scale on their on the visualizations. And that's despite lockdown. Quickly going about the reproduction number. For influenza, it's between 0.9 and 2. Um, 
And what we're seeing actually is it's possible that this is as, as, as infectious as smallpox, but not as, as infectious as something like measles. So for the future, well, what can we learn? Well, um, better preparation on test and trace is definitely the way forward. And um, we're really trying to avoid full lockdowns in the future. Um, so that's part of the future work. That's part of the work I'm involved in. Uh, I have a um, New Zealand project, which has been run with uh, ESR, Universities of Otago, Massey and Auckland. And we're trying to support and help with potential outbreak surveillance. And we're using uh, virus genomics linked to other data sources to understand the virus um, and how that's been transmitted. Uh, and we hope that we can start to support uh, track and trace in, in real time using uh, these data sources. Uh, thank you, Colin. And uh, we'll save uh, any questions uh, for you towards the end. And so now we're going to go to Dr. Anna Matheson. Uh, hello, Anna. Anna is a senior lecturer in health policy in the School of Health. She has a background in public health and has a focus on understanding what can be done to reduce health inequalities in social groups and between social groups. Anna is currently leading the evaluation of the Healthy Families New Zealand and is an investigator with Te Punaha Matatini, uh, the Centre of Research Excellence on Complex Systems. And is going to talk about COVID-19 and its impact on inequality, as well as what can be learned from our public health response in New Zealand so that communities can be better prepared for the next epidemic or pandemic. Anna, welcome. Over to you. Thank you very much, Gregor. Tēnā koutou katoa. So I'm going to talk about what the pandemic has shown us about inequality, about our readiness in New Zealand for this crisis that we knew was going to come, and some of the lessons uh, that we've learned. Uh, looking at what's happened globally, where countries have been unable to contain the virus, as well as here in New Zealand where we have been able to control it, uh, there are a few things that have struck me. Uh, it's shown so clearly the very intimate relationship between uh, infectious diseases and non-communicable diseases, which currently account for the biggest burden of disease globally. The underlying determinants of health, such as income, employment, housing, unhealthy local environments, access to healthcare and politics, shape the spread of non-communicable diseases, just as they've shaped the spread of COVID-19. The compounding of poor experiences of the determinants of health for some groups, while others have a compounding of positive experiences, is what drives health inequality. And this is clearly playing out globally, where we can see that where the virus has been able to run away, health outcomes are being shaped by existing inequality between different groups, with the worst impacts for the poor and minority groups. In New Zealand, we have um, uh, had we let the virus loose on the population, we would um, have certainly seen uh, inequitable out health outcomes. But even though we have so far avoided an epidemic, um, there are and will be unequal consequences. Uh, it's likely that those who already find access to healthcare difficult will experience further barriers because of the disruption to health services over this time. Uh, while we also saw, uh, have seen just how precarious the income situation of many Kiwis is. Uh, the, Commission on, uh, Financial, the Commission for Financial Capability 
uh, released a report not long ago showing that during level four lockdown, 34% of households were in financial difficulty with 40% at risk of tipping into hardship. While we have also, um, uh, there is also evidence accumulating um, that those with wealth and privilege have been able to protect themselves from consequences, whilst those with great wealth and privilege have even gained through the pandemic. But inequality involves everybody and is a deeply embedded feature of our social systems as being uncovered. So in New Zealand, were we ready? And I, and I argue we were not ready for the pandemic. So our success in New Zealand at controlling the virus is not because we were ready for it. Um, we did have a plan for an anticipated pandemic, but it became clear the plan wasn't entirely fit for purpose, and it was predicated on a uh, well-connected public health sector, which we did not have. Um, I remember a few years ago, I had uh, was the acting deputy director of uh, public health from the Ministry of Health, came to talk to a class that I was teaching, and he openly offered up some uh, vivid imagery around how public health was in a state of dismemberment with its limbs and other body parts strewn throughout the health sector trying desperately to reconnect themselves. Um, and you know, and a key example of this loss was the scrapping of the public health intelligence uh, section in the Ministry of Health, which was charged with collecting and holding data and insights relevant to public health. Uh, another anecdote um, comes from my work in communities over the past few years where I had contact with the public health units and through these relationships it became uh, really clear that there was a widespread feeling of isolation from the health sector. Um, many feeling that they had few allies in the important community level work that they were doing, including on the social determinants of health. So over the last decade in New Zealand, both leadership and coordination um, in public health has been lost. And this degrading of public health was in part due to it being framed as a threat uh, to those whose politics have favoured corporate freedoms and ep economic growth above the health and well-being of most people. Uh, and going hand in hand with this view also seems to be scepticism of science and evidence. The politicisation of public health could have been disastrous for our pandemic response, like the situations we're seeing play out in the United States and the United Kingdom. But instead, and with great luck and time to learn from other countries, we've had strong leadership that's valued and used the science that we had about managing outbreaks, has prioritised human lives and sought to build community trust. From here, we were able to pull together and bolster our public health response. The global death toll is showing just how important it has been to um, take these stances. We've been able to see with clarity that there's a reality beyond politics, which science, although it's not perfect, is our best tool for understanding. Most countries that have taken a humane and science-based approach have weathered the pandemic more successfully. Uh, so just a few closing thoughts from me about um, what needs to happen as we move through the crisis. Um, we need to make real change in the underlying determinants of health. Uh, for example, people need livable, secure incomes and they need warm, dry, secure housing. Uh, I began my career researching uh, the links between housing and health almost 20 years ago, in which there are many links. And the progress that we've made to improve um, the housing stock in New Zealand in that time has just not been nearly enough. Uh, we also need to strengthen the ability of communities to be able to act on their own well-being. 
strengthening public health units is critical, but also needed is strengthening community organisation general, in general so that communities have greater fiscal control and are empowered to take action rather than being actively constrained. Uh, there are international examples of approaches to community wealth building uh, from which we can take lessons about how you reorient health and social systems towards greater local control in order to create fairer labour markets, um, healthier and more sustainable food systems, more accessible health services and more inclusive and meaningful participation in, um, and decision making. Local councils could play a greater role in governing for well-being and government investment strategies could aim for long-term collaboration on shared goals rather than competition. I've also seen that there's a public health legislation bill currently before parliament that recognises just how the public sector has struggled to coordinate actions within itself over the past few decades. Uh, and I have my fingers crossed that when passed, this act will be a lever for not only more effective whole of government and intersectoral action, but also a lever for recognising the centrality of communities and the need for them to hold more power in order to take action. So next time there's a pandemic, which there will be, my hope is that we're better prepared and not reliant on luck that we have a government in power that happens to value science and lives. But also while we do have this chance, let's put these lessons into action now to address inequality and our impact on the environment, those slower moving but underlying threats to human health and well-being. He aroha whakato, he aroha putamai. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. That's uh, going to be a very interesting discussion following that presentation, and we look forward to more questions as well. Thank you. Our next speaker is Dr. Tara Officer. Uh, Tara is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Health Services Research Centre in the faculty. She's a New Zealand registered pharma pharmacist and is currently working on two Health Research Council grants uh, on the development of the pharmacist role in community pharmacy and more broadly in primary care. She's going to be speaking to us on pharmacy practice under COVID-19 and particularly covering off how demand for pharmacy services changed and then the logistic issues of managing demand and supply in pharmacy, including the benefits or otherwise of e-prescribing and repeat reminder service and discuss the $5 co-payment. Tara, we look forward to what you have to tell us, and over to you. Many thanks, Gregor. Um, but just a um, just to start, I think New Zealand, perhaps by luck, perhaps by intention, has managed COVID nineteen well, and so that's given us the ability to have these discussions today and reflect on how service delivery has changed as a result of. COVID-19. For example, in yesterday's session, we talked about primary healthcare access via telehealth. In terms of pharmacy, however, the pandemic brought several changes to service delivery. And one of the main ones occurred just as the country was going into lockdown, where there were, as many of you may have experienced, long wait times for prescriptions and difficulties in contacting pharmacy, for example, contacting community pharmacies. For example, some pharmacies had as many as a thousand phone calls a day, limiting their ability to actually get through the number of prescriptions. There are also limits in the number of people able to attend pharmacies in person and limits in the way that pharmacies were dispensing prescriptions. At the same time, there were, this led to a change to 
towards more traditional dispensing roles of pharmacists and less focus on the extended services that they had been trained to deliver, except for one um, of one specific example, which is that of vaccinations that I'll get onto in a bit. Um, we also saw, however, a need for more vigilance because there were more possibility of errors as the increase in prescription numbers occurred. As time went on, however, further into the lockdown, especially if you look at reports from Green Cross um, Health and the Pharmacy Guild, for many pharmacies, there was also actually a reduction in prescription numbers alongside a reduction in, in retail sales, leading to concerns for the long-term sustainability of pharmacy, um, with some pharmacies even closing down over this period and some closing down permanently. Alongside changes in demand, however, community pharmacies often changed how they operated. Um, for example, they changed the hours of operation or they worked in shifts or there were legislative changes. And if we think about those, the sudden increase in e-prescribing, for example, coupled with temporary legislative changes like the signature exemptions that occurred for some prescriptions were aimed at facilitating more contactless prescribing. But they also meant that pharmacy in general practice needed to adapt to new ways of working. Um, in terms of this, because it was implemented by and large during the pandemic, this also led to some problems and one area for future growth could be, well, I guess it can't be future growth if it needed to happen in the past, but the process of uh, introducing e-prescribing had occurred long before this and should have been taken up far sooner. Thinking about the $5 co-payment, this was something of a barrier to many patients, particularly with the fact that we were trying to go to a contactless solution and reduce direct patient contact. So there's reports of pharmacies not being able to get the co-payment, um, patients being unable to afford it, partly in thinking about what Anna said about the financial difficulties that many uh, families Fano had. This was evident also in the ability to pay the $5 co-payment. And it's interesting that if you think about the Simpson report released in June, it doesn't support the removal of the $5 co-payment, but particularly over COVID-19, over the lockdown period, it was considered a barrier to equitable care delivery. Outside of traditional community pharmacy, we also saw other changes, like the Māori Pharmacists Association restarted their free phone line for patients, Komatua and Fano, um, to allow them to ask questions around their medicines. Similarly, in community pharmacy, for example, in Tokoroa, we saw general practitioners working alongside and in community pharmacy to sort prescriptions and help with triage. Thinking about stock of medicines, however, one thing that um, happened is, as many of you may be aware, there was a change to the dispensing frequency rules because of limitations in stock due to global issues in producing and transporting the medicines. As of March 26th, pharmacists were only able to dispense a month's worth of medication at a time. This is slowly changing come the end of the month. Um, there were both advantages and disadvantages to this. On the one hand, it was more administrative. There were potentials for compliance problems for patients. There were potential for additional errors because of increasing dispensing frequency. But on the other hand, there are reports, for example, in the Pacific community suggesting that this led to people being more on their toes and remembering to pick up prescriptions. It's an interesting balance between are we actually 
creating more work or are we creating a system that facilitates service delivery? Now, um, thinking about vaccines, one of the really interesting things that happened is the fact that there was such an increase in vaccination rates over the time. Uh, in a report from Pharmacy Today, the rates for in June, to compared to June last year, there was a 335% jump on the number of funded vaccines that pharmacies had claimed. Um, they also doubled the proportions of vaccines they received, getting about 6% last year and 14% this year. It'll be interesting to see what this means for future development, whether people are still going to be interested in getting vaccines when COVID isn't considered a problem. Now, I just want to wrap up with a few final thoughts about things that could be done differently. Um, one of the big things is the idea of communication and access to information. Now, as we all know, timely access to information is critical. And certainly when you talk to pharmacists, there was this feeling of anecdotal reports suggesting that at least initially, pharmacists were only able to get relevant information from overseas sources. And it did take a long time for that, um, those needs to be met. In addition, there were discussions around um, PPE access and whether pharmacists should qualify for that. Um, secondly, thinking about e-prescribing, as I said, this should have been set up properly a long time ago, but necessity is the mother of invention, they say. Um, finally, this is thinking about the supply issues. There, there needs to be a recognition that this will be a global, um, a global long-term problem. Thinking about paracetamol, we're currently in the last wee bit of our supply there, and this has meant that Pharmac has changed um, the brands that they're funding for it. Um, and I just want to conclude by saying that my next step in the research that I'll be doing is looking at the use of telehealth and mental health service delivery in the Wellington region over COVID. 19 alert levels three and four. So it'll be interesting to at some point inform you about those recommendations as well. Thank you. Thank you, Tara. That's great. Wonderful. So uh, we've got some questions lined up here. So the first one will be for Colin. Colin, is there any evidence of any recent scientific evidence about airborne transmission of COVID-19 in New Zealand? No, I don't know of any studies that have been performed here in New Zealand. Uh, there are a lot of different centres who are trying to look at this. And uh, one that was very recent um, was that uh, people who are very tall are much more susceptible. So uh, transmission to, uh, via aerosol, for instance, if you're, if you're taller, you seem to be more at risk. And then there's individuals looking at how you're running and walking and being outdoors versus indoors, looking at ventilation and so forth. But I think actually just looking at bigger picture, um, transmission is, is high. Uh, and it seems to be occurring in the summer months as well um, in the Northern Hemisphere. So uh, I think the understanding is that there's an aerosol element. Thank you. And for Anna, there's a question here. Does telehealth go some way to address inequities in the health system? Telehealth? Yes. I, I would suspect, I, I don't know heaps about uh, telehealth, but I would suspect that it depends on how it's implemented. Um, often, uh, you know, often technology can increase inequities. Um, that's certainly what we've seen. So that's sort of along the lines that those who are less well off 
may not either have this have a enthusiasm to engage in even a phone call to get it sorted out, or they may not be able to use it. Yeah, no, no internet connection. Yeah. No, um, you know, different different types of um, um, health literacy and um, and and uh, yeah, yeah, all sorts of reasons. All right, well, here's a question for everyone. Uh, we are already seeing distressing evidence from other countries that Indigenous peoples have been adversely affected by COVID. Can the panellists provide us with any confidence that we won't see similar outcomes for Māori in New Zealand? No, can't give you confidence in that. <laughs> and I think, it, I think actually it's around, it's around what would give me more confidence if we knew which risk groups were being targeted for vaccination. And I think Indigenous people are highly susceptible. Um, there may be a number of reasons for that. It's quite complex. So we, we've seen that um, uh, in the UK have just funded a number of projects looking at ethnicity and um, adverse outcomes. And so, yeah, so I think it boils down to um, how we prevent transmission amongst these communities mm. uh, and vaccination, uh, you know, who's first in line uh, yeah. for the most effective vaccinations, I think is going to be an important consideration. But it's also it's also how the um, economic consequences are going to fall as well, which um, f from my reading of, of what's coming out of the evidence, you know, we'll see poor communities uh, and we know that Māori and Pacific, you know, have a higher proportion um, within poor communities as well are going to be um, more affected by the economic consequences of the pandemic. The other part, of course, is that in New Zealand, at least, we are trying to target our health promotion, target our language so that we are meeting cultural needs. But overall, yes, we'll probably find that if we were to face a second wave that would potentially have the same problem occur. Thank you. Here's a question. We've spent $50 billion so far on the COVID response. Anna, you noted lack of progress on housing, and quite rightly, this has got a huge uh, health impact. What thoughts does the panel have about population health gain if that funding had been also or instead invested in housing? Oh, so that's a good question. Um... Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, the measures that the government has had to take, including sort of wage support and income support, um, you know, in response to the crisis, if, if we uh, had more secure um, co uh, communities and um, income and better housing, you know, would they have to have spent that much money um, uh, at this, you know, emergency spot? So, so... Um, yeah, it's a good question. Okay, thank you. We'll go to the next question. Does the panel have any comment on the ongoing, long-lasting health effects being experienced by people who have had COVID-19? Is this affecting particular communities, demographics? We don't know yet. So, so a lot of the information is anecdote at the moment and the evidence is not quite there. Uh, and we know that obviously there are, with a number of viruses, there are post-viral issues. Um, so it's whether these are for those who've had SARS coronavirus to 
uh, whether these are more severe than, than other viruses. Uh, again, in the UK, there's been a number of very large projects. I think one was funded 11 million pounds to look at this um, and has started in earnest. So they're going to look at hospitalized individuals and uh, who've taken part in a number of studies and, and look to follow these people up uh, using routine data sources and um, surveys and so forth. So we should get a better handle on this uh, over the coming year, I think. Thanks, Connor. Well, I've got you there. Um, there's been a resurgence of uh, COVID-19 virus around the world. You've been looking at the epidemiology. What are your predictions around the future track of this virus? Are we going to see more or less? Or what, what, do you, what are your predictions? Uh, you're putting me in a dangerous spot, Gregor. It's very hard to predict with this virus where, where we go. Uh, one would say that this isn't really a second wave that we're seeing. It's actually the first wave that's just continuing. Um, and it was suppressed and now it's, it's, it's been released once more in certain countries. I think the great worry is, is in the Northern Hemisphere is that we may combine a very severe flu season with a, a second wave or ongoing transmission of this of SARS. So my prediction is that um, don't be surprised about anything. We just don't know at this stage. Okay, thank you very much. Anna, are there any comments on the Swedish experience, please? Yeah, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Because that was one where um, also science was used as the, um, as the underpinning response. Um, and, I, and, I, and I did think about that, and I, the, the other piece of that puzzle is that uh, they didn't consider the human lives component and um, making sure that they were protecting human lives. And I think that that's a really critical part, you know, those values um, which are, are underpinning the response. Thank you. Um, uh, we've got a question here. Is there any evidence for herd immunity? Again, it's quite complicated. I mean, for herd immunity, for some, for something like measles, where you've got a basic reproduction number of 11 or 12, you're needing herd immunity through vaccination of well, around 85 to 90%. For this, uh, I would suspect you're needing, you're needing 70, 60, 70% of people to be, uh, have either um, had um, seroconversion, so they have some sort of, um, had some sort of immune response uh, or vaccination. And that's assuming highly effective vaccine. So uh, yeah, I think uh, in terms of natural herd immunity, if there's such a thing, uh, we are a long way off. Um, if ever, um, without some form of vaccine. Um, so, yeah, so I think that's a really good question and we shall wait, watch and see. Thank you very much. I want to insert a question here for Tara. Um, Tara, what can we do to improve pharmacy services in future pandemics? Uh, well, I think that's that's a great question. It really depends on what pharmacy services we're talking about. Um, one of the things that quite clearly came out of this 
pandemic was the fact that we moved essentially back to a traditional role for pharmacists and dispensing. Um, pharmacists can do a, a lot more in terms of medicine management and managing those comorbidities that lead to issues with uh, with health and complications leading to things leading to worse outcomes for COVID, for example. Um, so one thing that we can do thinking about the future is continuing education, facilitating funding for postgraduate education to enable pharmacists to work at the top of their scope and operate in a way that will benefit patients more than just through handing out medication. Thank you. And um, I want to give Anna another question. You know, uh, we've recently seen the Health and Disability Review Report, the Simpson Report. Uh, it had a bit to say about public health. And uh, so how do you think uh, the government will manage this, the present government, if we get a Labour Greens or whatever we get? Um, what's going to happen? Where do you think public health is going to go? And um, how would you see the, the report benefiting future pandemics? Ah. <laughs> Yes, lots there. Um, I have a feeling that um, public health in general is going to get a lot of attention uh, in the next few years. Uh, and that, uh, so that's sort of situation of uh, disconnection um, that I was talking about. I think that that will be a focus um, because it was became really apparent, you know, that that's what had happened. Um, oh, what, was, what was the last bit of that? Well, just be interested to uh, see what the government, what you think government might do with uh, public health. Oh, with the disability, yeah. Mm. So, so there was a really interesting report, of course, you know, lots, huge amount of work went into that report um, and it made some, uh, some great suggestions about aspects of the health system. I mean, um, the area that I found, found myself thinking, is that what, where you should go was, was around having the, was around sort of the structural response, um, you know, having these organisations like the um, uh, like the Māori Health Organisation and the um, the other health organisation, rather than really focusing on cultural change, uh, you know, culture change within the health sector. Um, and even I know that there's been talk about um, people wanting, like, you know, a public health uh, leadership, public health organisation, and I. From the stuff which I'm doing, I'm, you know, is, is that the answer? I, I do think it's more about culture change and where um, you're focusing that action um, on. Okay, thank you. Uh, here's a question. Um, vaccine development seems to be happening at pace. What are the risks and how that, can they be mitigated here in New Zealand? R risks as in uh, risks of not having available vaccine? Um, it's a slight, it's quite a broad term, so I'm not sure. Yes, well, I think that we'd probably be thinking about uh, what are the risks when you don't have long clinical trials, so phase three trials? Yeah, well, I think that's the thing. The licensing will still require these trials, to, and that's why we're taking so long to do this properly and ensure that, that it's done the right way, particularly the efficacy and safety. Uh, aspect has to be done. Um, so I think for New Zealand, actually, we're the opposite. I would flip that into a positive because we don't have community transmission and we can wait and take our pick of what's the most highly effective and safest vaccine. Right. Okay. Thank you. 
Um, here's another one. Uh, Colin uh, noted that 80% of cases of COVID-19 might be asymptomatic. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the studies that this has been based on, please? Yes, I saw that question. Slight slip of the tongue. The upper range can be moving towards 80%, but the average is about 50%. And again, it can range between the testing regimes of the country, the accuracy of testing and so forth. Um, but I can, there's a nice paper in Nature Medicine actually, which, uh, which I can pop across to that person. Thank you. Um, so here's a question, all risks, there are risks associated with vaccination or inoculation. Um, when will we know if an inoculation will say in five years result in a bad outcome? That's the question. So this is phase four um, of clinical trials. So this is post-license surveillance. So any new uh, um, therapy that's introduced, uh, there's an element of um, uh, understanding what happens once it's been uh, licensed in the market. So a number of phase four studies will occur uh, on the back of these vaccines to ensure ongoing safety and, and efficacy, because we may have mutation. Um, and there's also um, observational studies as well. So we, um, in a project I'm involved in Scotland, we're gonna be looking at effectiveness. So this is going into the population, finding out the effectiveness of the vaccine and also looking at safety as well. So uh, there's a lot of work around ensuring that vaccines are, they work and they're safe. And usually they work when they're licensed in the population, they work and they're safe. Thank you. And uh, I think perhaps the last question, uh, do the, does the panel think that it would be useful to have a district director of public health responsible for an independent report on the health of the population they are responsible for. Anna, would you like to try that one? Mm. Um, that could be part of, um, you know, a, a, a response. But I, I, I suppose, you know, from the work that I've been doing, it's um, the gap that I have seen is around, you know, really what needs to happen in communities from the perspective of communities. So only if that directed director of public health or whatever name you gave it was had methods of understanding, you know, what was needed and the features of the population, then maybe it would be useful. And building on that, it's also the fact that you want to have reporting that is not only independent, but that is based on monitoring is actually going to be used and mean something. So the question by itself would need a bit more thought around how that would sit within the Yeah, whole yeah. And, and I mean, and, and so, yeah, and on that, you know, so um, when I talked about even the public health uh, intelligence section at the Ministry of Health, which held a lot of data, still one of the problems even at that time was about having uh, sort of data and insights that was usable at a local level. And that's still a problem. Um, so it's, you know, how do you make the, that monitoring data and information usable for, you know, real decision-making and action on the ground? Yes, well, that's lovely. So um, that uh, brings to a conclusion our COVID-19 and public health webinar. Thank you to our speakers. Uh, we've greatly appreciated the contributions that you've brought 
And thank you too to our audience for joining us on this webinar. Thank you and have a good day. Cheers. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. Thank you to Te Koki School of Music alumni Stefan Patton and Kenyon Shanky for the use of their music. From Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, Haere rā.